The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about hormone testing. How do you know which test to choose? You choose Genova, of course. No, actually, I meant saliva, urine, serum. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report. really feeling the intro that time. I mean, of course I'm going to choose Genova. It's the best. Well, yeah. Duh. I'm it. No brainer. We're going deeper. Hello. Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you today? I'm doing so great. Welcome to the Lab Report. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine, Uh specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and hormone selection type, sample types. Such a common question. But in the meantime, if you're new to our podcast, you should subscribe. Hit that subscribe button, please. I mean, no one likes being told what they should do. But it would be so helpful to us. But tough, right? (laughs) You should do this. Bossy. Yeah. Yeah. Just rate and review, leave some feedback, or contact us here at the show. Oh, yeah. You can email podcast at gdx.net. If you got something on your mind, you want to share it, um, you know, we'll just take a look. But to your point in the intro, mm. of course, when you're going to choose any test, you're going to choose Genova because Genova is the best. We've been doing this longer than just about anybody out there. Yeah. But we're talking a little bit deeper here. Well, and on top of us doing hormone testing for a long time, if you've got a sample type that's your favorite, whether it's serum, saliva, or urine, we test all of those matrices. One-stop shop. So we've got it. Yep. So that's that's something to be aware of. But, you know, I think the place that we always start is well what's the difference you've got all like (laughs) you've got serum you've got urine you've got saliva and you can measure estrogen and progesterone testosterone and all of them so like what is the difference why why and the and the other thing that comes up is when would i test hormones why am i testing hormones who are the patients in whom i would test hormone levels well there's that too yeah and so you think a lot of clinicians out there really are specialists in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. And so those are people who might want to measure. But there's also people, if even if you're not on bioidentical hormone therapy, there's a lot of clinical conditions where you might want to check in on someone's hormone levels. Yeah, like all of them, right? <laughs> I mean, hormones are the chemical messengers of the body. Uh-huh. And so you can have hormone abnormalities related to just about every single clinical condition that's out there. That being said, I mean... There are some symptoms that you think about more specifically, I guess, to hormones. But the point I was trying to make is that you could kind of run these on just about everyone. That's true. And the most common symptom that comes to most people's minds is that of hot flashes or perimenopause symptoms. Right. Right? Yeah. So it's probably the most common, those vasomotor symptoms. Yeah, that's that's a big one because we know about the dramatic changes to hormones that are happening during that, that phase of life. Um, some other things we think about are like fatigue. Right. Energy issues um, mm-hmm. because of not only thyroid and cortisol, well, we get into that, but, uh, you know, things that are multifactorial, mm-hmm. even things like headaches or skin conditions. Right. Brain fog, insomnia. 
Cognitive right? issues. Yep. Yeah. Um, acne, big one. Yep. People who are having a hard time conceiving, if there's fertility issues, they just want to check in. What What's going on with my hormone levels? Yeah. Un- loss, unexplained weight loss or weight, or weight, weight gain. gain. Yeah. All your you know, hypothyroid symptoms, yep. you know, dry yeah. skin, things oh, like that. Yeah. All of these Cold things. intolerance. So to Michael's point, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I said it a little bit more concisely before. But now it brings us to the point of, okay, now where do I start? Right, right. And I think a good model for this is the idea of the hormones laying them out in a fashion of a pyramid. I love that analogy. You do? I, I use it on the telephone oh. when I speak to doctors. Okay. Since you love it so much, do you want to... You want to explain it to the people? <laughs> well, you know that w- whenever you learn about hormones, you realize that they are, it's like a symphony and they all must work together. And so knowing that they all have to be in concert with each other, where do you start? And so this idea of this pyramid, I think we first saw it at IFM, did we, Michael? I'm not sure where this originated, actually. Uh, well, if you think of a pyramid, the base of the pyramid is the adrenal glands, right? The HPA axis. Okay. The middle of the triangle is the thyroid. Okay. And the tip of the triangle is the sex hormones, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a really good way to start explaining the importance in the hierarchy. Yeah. And I mean, it kind of gives you this understanding that, yes, they are all working together. They all, it's sort of like a web where you pull on one thread and the others move. That's all true. But mm-hmm. it seems to be that there are some that influence others a little bit more directly. So mm-hmm. if cortisol or HPA axis function is at the base of the pyramid, then that's going to have a more strong influence on the thyroid, which then has a more strong influence on your sex hormones. And that gives you a little bit of an outline, not only from an assessment standpoint, but also from an intervention standpoint, which saves you tons of time when you're trying to figure out where do I start clinically. And that's how I use it. Because there are clinicians who want to jump right to giving, giving a patient some type of hormone replacement. And I always say, wow, no, let's step back because let's get to that even deeper root cause, which is HPA axis dysfunction. And there's going to be some philosophical disagreements here, mm-hmm. right? Because there are going to be some people that will absolutely just jump immediately to the sex hormones. And I think with good cause for some Depends. For, yeah. know, it's, Someone's it's feeling always, really bad. Yeah. And you're, you're taking a personalized approach to it. You want to address symptoms that are, uh, you want to make, you want to be palliative. Right. Like that is a part of being Agreed. a physician. Yeah. Right. And if the more that you can palliate the different symptoms that are arising, the more you can work on some of the more challenging aspects like HPA axis dysfunction, which to be honest, can be really difficult to have a successful clinical intervention for. And it can take some time. And some patients don't have the time. They just, their lives are so affected by their symptoms. We get it. So you want to make them feel better, but never just leave it there. Always try to get back to that root cause. Or do both, you Mm -hmm. know, right? always hit the root cause and treat the symptoms as well. And then you're going to be successful. You're going to have a much happier patient. All right. So let's get to that. Okay. So let me ask you this question. We're talking about cortisol and HPA axis being the base of the pyramid. That's right. Why is it the base of the pyramid? So we've talked on prior episodes about how important cortisol and how far reaching its effects are. Yeah, we have done that. Uh, Bottom line, if you want to simplify it, is that chronic high cortisol is bad. (laughs) It's catabolic. It's catabolic. It creates all sorts of metabolic havoc. But then most people forget that the HPA axis starts in your brain. Most people do forget that. That's right. correct. So your hypothalamus secretes corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH, uh-huh. and that's what stimulates your adrenal gland to release cortisol. Yes. So that's two hormones involved in the stress response. And those two hormones have a direct 
effect on some of your thyroid hormones and some of your thyroid activity, right? Yeah. So they inhibit TSH. Mm-hmm. They inhibit TRH. Right. So there they're having an upstream effect on thyroid activity. And they also inhibit the conversion of T4 to T3, correct? Correct. Yeah. So not it's, good. it's not good. But in other places, CRH itself also inhibits gonadotropin-releasing hormone mm-hmm. and growth hormone. So in general, the higher your stress response is, the more you're suppressing reproductive growth and thyroid functions. Hence it being at the bottom of the pyramid. That's exactly right. Because it's influencing those other right. two areas, the thyroid and the sex hormones. Correct. Got it. So that brings us to the middle of the triangle, the thyroid. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts on that, Michael? Well, as we just discovered with the thyroid, uh, so much of this is dependent on your general HPA axis function. Um, and then from there, like what happens is that your meta- your metabolism is changing based on this uh, this aspect of cortisol and cortisol resistance because mm-hmm. the higher and higher cortisol goes, you're going to get tissue resistance, right? Mm-hmm. And that's going to change your metabolic activity. And then the thyroid comes in and says, hey, wait a minute, like we're we're acting as if we're in some sort of starvation state. We've got high cortisol, insulin's going crazy. Now we need to ramp up our our metabolic rate because of this. Mm -hmm. And so what you find is that then you start pumping more thyroid and you get more TSH and then you start getting this same sort of resistance pattern with the, with respect to the thyroid. Right. So that's the next step. And then what happens? Then you think, okay, what's the tip of the triangle, the sex hormones. So you think estrogen, progesterone, Mm -hmm. testosterone, and there are three different kinds of estrogen. Right. There's E1, E2, and E3. And E1 is estrone, which is the primary circulating hormone in menopausal females, but in in all females, actually. But E2 is estradiol, which is the primary circulating estrogen in reproductive-aged or menstruating females. Right. And then estriol is in pregnant women, usually. And when you take a look... At the steroidogenic pathway, which is what's responsible for the creation of all your sex hormones, you find that thyroid hormone has inhibitory and excitatory impacts to a bunch of these enzymes. So it's regulating the the flow of these enzymes all over the place. And what's more is we, we talked about how there's an impact on gonadotropin-releasing hormone from cortisol and the cortisol hormones, but there's also... That what what we refer to as the cortisol or pregnenolone steel aspect. And just briefly, we talked to Tom Williams about cortisol or pregnenolone steel, and there's big question out there as to whether this is even a thing, and it's likely kind of not a thing mm-hmm. because these hormones, the idea is cortisol has to either... The, the, the hormone that turns into cortisol can either turn into cortisol or turn into DHEA, and you have to kind of choose. And so the more cortisol you make, the less DHA you make, meaning the less androgens and other hormones. So there's the steel aspect. But it turns out they're not actually even made in the same spot. Right. There are different cells that make those two things. So Tom says it's physiologically doesn't make sense. Yeah. Though he does talk about how the stress response does affect sex hormones. Which probably goes back to what we were just talking about before. There's a central nervous system feedback regulation. And so the more cortisol you produce, the less androgens you're producing. And it probably comes back to that regulation on on gonadotropin releasing hormone, right? Well, I think... That would make sense. Yeah, and I think you're perfectly making the point of why the HPA axis is the backbone of all of this. Right, right. So... When, with respect to the sex hormones, you can see how HPA axis influences it, and you mm-hmm. can see how thyroid influences, right. which is why it's the tip of the the, <laughs> the top of the pyramid. Right. 
Okay, so we've got the pyramids sorted. <laughs> I think <laughs> we know these are all interconnected and all important. And that's right. There's so many patients and so many symptoms in which you consider testing for hormones. And since you said we should consider testing for hormones, right. that takes us to saliva, serum, urine. Right. Like, how do you decide? How I, do you figure that out? It's a good question. Thanks. Um, you know, since you said that, there's actually Kay. someone on the team who is our official hmm. metaphor. The king, king of metaphors. Yes. So that brings us to a new segment. I can't wait. Metaphorically speaking with Stephen Goldman. Hello. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm, I'm great. Who's this? <laughs> this is Patty, <laughs> Patty Michael. Michael from the podcast. We're calling from the podcast. What? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm going to be on the lab report. I'm very excited. How yep. can I help? <laughs> well, we were actually just having a conversation, and we were talking about how there's a member of the team who is fantastic at metaphors. And from there, we decided to create this segment called Metaphorically Speaking with Stephen Goldman. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Dr. Stubby, but okay. <laughs> so one of the metaphors that we are familiar with and we were hoping you could give us some insight into is around hormone testing and which is the best medium to use or how you think about these different mediums, whether it's urine, serum, saliva for hormone testing. Okay, uh, I can do that. You know, it, it, it's a great thing to know because uh, it's hard to keep straight sometimes. So the way I look at it in terms of hormone testing, there are three types of testing we do at Genova. There's blood, saliva, and urine testing. So blood is like going to the bank and saying, tell me everything I've got in my account. Uh, the cash, the checking that's available, unbound. Uh, the SAP, the IRA that I can't touch yet, the bound. Just the total, what have I got? Uh, the saliva is like saying how much cash is ready to go, which is really the unbound, uh, ready-to-go enzyme. And then uh, the urine is more like, give me my receipts, my metabolites, so I can add them up and see where I'm spending my money. So if I want to look at my metabolites and see what pathways are up-regulated or down-regulated. So give me my receipts so I can add them up and see where I'm spending my money. And I that's the metaphor. That. I love that. You know, ever since you, you told us that, we all use that on the phone now to explain this to clinicians. It's the best. It is the best. Oh, boy. Well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's a good one, too. But I love that you're looking into metaphors, great teaching tools. I love them, as you know. Well, this is a recurrent segment, Stephen, so be prepared. I'm always prepared for recorded <laughs> segments. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for letting us uh, use use a little bit of your time, Stephen. And thanks for your input. All right. Well, my great pleasure. You guys have a great day now. You too. Right. Bye-bye. You know, Stephen is really good at those metaphors. <laughs> and um, that, that's how I actually remember it. You know, Maybe I we think... should have like a counter segment where I'm just really bad at metaphors. <laughs> that's this entire podcast, Michael. Ouch. Okay. So when he was talking about bioavailable, he was talking about cash, cash on hand, what's ready to be used immediately. Yes, and that's what you think of when you think of saliva, because saliva is essentially unbound hormone. When you're measuring hormones in saliva, they're unbound. Right. And so when he's talking about bound, he was talking about going into the bank and getting your mortgage, your savings account, all of these things, because hormones travel around in your blood bound to various 
proteins or binding lobulins or albumin. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so we'll talk a little bit about when that's appropriate for a measuring standpoint. Um, but then the last thing we talk about is urine, which is a lo- is like adding up your receipts right. to find your hormones, right? And so we're looking at hormone metabolites, their breakdown products. And by evaluating how much of these breakdown products there are, it gives you a sense of where the hormone was spent, right? right. What, it's like adding up your receipts. Right. So Knowing this information, why don't we go back through that pyramid and kind of talk about when you would measure or what's the most studied way of measuring each of those? Sounds good. Okay, so let's start with the base of the pyramid again. Mm -hmm. And let's start with here we're thinking mostly of cortisol and cortisol evaluation. Right. And here we're talking about measuring cortisol and DHEA. But if you go to the literature, just about all of it is in the saliva. That's right. Almost all of the literature on evaluation for cortisol is in the form of measuring it in the saliva. And uh, we talk about doing four-point salivary cortisols or cortisol awakening response, which is actually pretty well represented in the literature as well. And that makes sense to be in the saliva, right? You want to know how well your stress, the stress response is, is adaptive. And so you want to know what's right there, what's ready to go, what do you have on hand? So that makes sense to be in saliva. Okay, so then when you get to the thyroid hormones, Mm -hmm. we are commonly evaluating these in the blood. These are fairly conventional labs, actually. We we run them here at Genova. Um, Some of the things you don't get as commonly are things like reverse T3. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so that's, you know, but your TSH, your free T3, free T4, those are pretty commonly evaluated. Your thyroid antibodies, um, that's all part of the comprehensive thyroid panel here at Genova Diagnostics, and that's a blood panel. All right, so that brings us to the sex hormones. Uh-oh. Estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Yeah. And to be honest, you can measure these a lot of different ways. Yeah. Right? This is where it starts to get a little bit complicated. That's right. So a lot of people use saliva just as a baseline. But, right. you know, just to kind of see what's your bioavailable level, what do you have on hand. Right. But we also measure the sex hormones in blood. Right. Yeah, so think about it this way. When you measure sex hormones in the blood, when you think about testosterone, you always get a free testosterone, right? The Mm -hmm. free testosterone tells you about the bioavailable testosterone, but you don't get a free estrogen or a free progesterone. So that's why people turn to the saliva because these are free versions of the hormone, and that's going to tell you about bioactive, bioavailable sex hormones. Right. And so that's a lot of why things like your E1, E2, E3, your progesterone, your, even your testosterone and DHEA are done in saliva. But we also measure sex hormones in the urine. And the reason we're measuring these in the urine primarily yeah. is, again, to add up those receipts. We want to know how well you're detoxifying estrogen. And, and if you're taking a pathway that's you know, risk-inducing or if there's something you can do to mitigate risk. So the urinary assessment gives you, you know, adding up the receipts. How are you detoxifying estrogen. Yeah. So a great example of this is like on the complete hormones, which is a urine test. We don't put a lot of stock in the actual level of testosterone and DHEA that we find in the urine. We look at the androgen metabolites. We add those up and that gives us a sense of overall the androgen hormone levels, right? Yeah, because they're already being broken down. They're yeah. already being metabolized. And yeah. same goes for progesterone. We look at pregnandiol, the progesterone metabolite, not progesterone itself, because progesterone is so rapidly metabolized. By the time it gets in the urine, you're not going to see parent progesterone very show up very much. Right. So the most common question we get is, where do I start? And our question back is, what are you looking for? What's the question you're looking to answer? 
which then leads to, are you looking to check someone's risk because they're on hormones? Are you just looking for bioavailability? Are you want to look at the stress response? That kind of helps guide where you're going to go as far as testing. Okay, so those are the basics of which test to choose. But I think after all of that, mm. maybe we should go to the question of the day. <laughs> thought you'd never ask. <laughs> what time is it? Oh, you know what time it is. Question of the day, question of the day, question of the day, question of the day. Wait, what time is it? Oh, I think you know what time it is. Question of the day, question of the day, question of the day, question of the day. I thought you were working on a new jingle. I am working on a new jingle. Oh, can't wait. <laughs> but in the meantime, that one's the least offensive to me. And this brings us to a very frequently asked question uh-huh. that we get in medical affairs. Mm. You... You might know there's a lot of controversy out there regarding the best practices as it relates to testing hormone levels in someone who's on topical bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. There is. There's a lot of controversy. So what do you think? What do you think? Personally, um, I I think we should all become a little bit familiar with uncertainty. (laughs) Agree. (laughs) Because we don't have the answers. No one has done enough rigor, enough studies where they compared saliva, serum, and urine all together. They haven't done dose response curves. So we we don't have enough to necessarily know exactly the, the best matrix to be using and where these hormones distribute, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a a big, there's, there's a couple different facets to this argument. There's the idea of tissue distribution versus circulation, mm-hmm. which is one little nuance. Um, and there's the aspect of metabolism and pharmacokinetics. So that's a long-winded way of saying it depends on the hormone mm-hmm. and it depends on where it's applied. So mm-hmm. in general, people who are on topical progesterone, this progesterone is one of your most fat-soluble hormones, okay? And so it's super lipophilic. You put it on your skin, it's well-absorbed, and then the question becomes, where does it circulate? It's likely what we see in general is with these topically applied hormones, they don't show up a lot in the serum. So it seems like serum in general is a pretty bad way of tracking the the uh, so application of topical. It's hormones. underrepresented, is what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, you don't see increases in the serum okay. concentration okay. after topical administration um, until you reach really, really high doses. Okay. And so the question then becomes: Well, how do we know that with these really, really high doses that there, it's getting to the tissue and, and it's not showing up in the serum. Maybe it's just not getting to the tissue. Maybe it's just, it takes really, really high doses. Well, we know because of symptomatic improvement. And we know because some studies where they've done topical administration, they've actually measured the, the subcutaneous tissue and shown that there's actually changes to the concentrations in the subcutaneous tissue. You see changes in uh, the, the uterine lining thickness. So we're, we're seeing that there is effect of these lower doses of hormones and it's still not enough to trigger higher levels of the, on the serum test. But then oftentimes we see enough saliva tests, Michael, all day long 
there are some times where you see really super physiologic levels on a pretty low dose right. in the saliva. Right. And so we don't know why this is. And we see this, we probably see it most with progesterone. Mm-hmm which is the most lipophilic. We see it more, then we see it probably with testosterone, which is the second most lipophilic, and then we see it with our estrogens. So there could be some issue around how the hormones are being metabolized or how they're being mobilized into salivary tissue. There is some literature that demonstrates people secrete hormones into their salivary, their salivary tissue um, yeah. at different rates. So, like, just the differences between person to person. Some people might be a heavy secretor, and some people might be a light secretor, meaning that the test that you're running might be better to compare somebody to themselves Hmm. pre and post Hmm. rather than comparing them to a reference reference range. range or something like that because they might have a different rate that they secrete hormone into the tissue, which makes it really, really challenging to set a reference range. But... There's another facet that if somebody has periodontal disease, uh-huh. you're going to have huge spikes of these hormones because of the blood contribution, which is at a much higher concentration of hormone than it is in the saliva. So right. that's a big concern as well. Um, now, the argument has been made from one camp that the saliva is more representative of the tissue distribution because the doses that are used to enact or change symptoms correlates better with the saliva. Does that make sense? So like if you do low dose progesterone or low dose estrogen, you see changes to endometrial thickening and decreasing of symptoms at this low dose, which also corresponds to somewhat of a, a, a more quote unquote normal rise in the saliva. If you go higher doses, then you get these really, really high spikes in the saliva. So that's been used to make the argument that it's more representative of tissue distribution. I think that is a compelling way to think about it, but I don't think we have enough evidence to necessarily demonstrate that that is... I mean, you never know something is fact in science, right? We're always disproving. That's kind of what science does. But I don't think there's enough evidence to necessarily say that we know that the tissue distribution to all tissue sites is represented by the saliva because so often we see it we see really high levels even with modest doses of topical hormone. Okay, well let me tell you my my confusion with urine, measuring levels of hormones in the urine. We we both agree the metabolites are the way to go when you're talking about urine. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who look at the parent hormones in the urine. And in my head, I just go back physiologically and I think, okay, what is urine? It's, it's blood that's been filtered through the kidneys and spilled into the urine. So I think in my head, whatever's there was excreted by your kidneys as not needed. So does that mean, A, that there was enough in the tissues, they have enough and they're spilling the rest out? If the hormones are low in the urine, does that mean we had just enough our levels are great. So what what does that mean in the urine? Well, what the studies have shown is that what shows up in the urine tends to correlate with the changes in serum, right? So if we say that serum is an inefficient vector, inefficient way to evaluate Mm -hmm. topical administration, then by default, you kind of have to say that urine is ineffective as well because it is, like you said, it's a filtrate of of the the blood, blood, right? right? And so... 
it's going to be it's going to correlate. It's going to be a direct representation. That makes at sense. At least with respect to the parent hormones. Well, that makes sense. Now, if you compare the parent hormones and the metabolites, then maybe you can get a little bit more of a representation because you're saying you can see what was metabolized, what was spent, and what wasn't spent. And you get kind of this whole pool of estrogens that are, or a whole pool of androgens. And that might give you a little bit of insight into the, the, the overall dosage that you, was being used, or at least the, in, the dosage plus the endogenous production. So I think to wrap this up, there's still a lot of controversy. It's still an unanswered question. People have their own camp. There's a lot of different opinions on this subject. And so, again, it really comes down to it depends. If, if they're on a topical bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and it happens to be something like progesterone, you know, it's really kind of just pick a, pick a lane. Yeah, and I think the bottom line is that whichever lane you pick, we've got you covered, right? We've got That's a right. urine test. We've got a saliva test. We've got a serum test. And we've got your back because we're not beholden to a particular camp Mm -hmm. we are beholden to the evidence and we try to be as transparent and we tell you what we know we tell you what we don't know and we set our ranges based on what we know and what we don't know and you can use them clinically to help any sort of hormonal replacement therapy that you're doing okay so patty what we did question of the day um i got another thing to talk about here go ahead you ready for this no i'm not (laughs) because you have a weird look on your face well weirder than usual (laughs) <laughs> we talked about the triangle. Okay. Right? The uh-huh. pyramid, triangle, whatever, whatever you want to call it. All right. And that the base of it is the HPA axis, right? Okay. Okay. But we just alluded to the fact that the HPA axis dysfunction and all of that starts in the brain. Okay. Right? Uh-huh. You said that. That's right. So we really need to add another layer to this pyramid underneath HPA axis, okay. which is perception okay now now hold up hold up hold up hold up hold up <laughs> i'm just do you remember I'm just making a point <laughs> do you remember when we did the whole episode on the hpa axis and the stress response no we riffed on and on and on about perception which is exactly it's so important and to your point i could see why you might want to add it to the base of the pyramid okay I, i'm willing yeah. to concede that yeah because it, it is that important however are you suggesting that we somehow now figure out a way to measure Perception. I mean, if we're talking lumbar puncture and CSF or brain biopsy and adding that to the Genova test menu, I'm not sure that's going to fly. Did you say brain biopsy? <laughs> yeah, I guess you can't really tell perception in a brain biopsy. But no. I thought you, I'm like, no, if I you could, <laughs> man, we would have a whole different type of science, wouldn't we? I'm People saying, have been trying to figure that one out for a while. I'm just saying we, we're talking about which test to choose. And I'm not sure we have a test for perception. Yeah. Yeah. But it is important, so you should probably <laughs> go back to that episode. How mindful are you? <laughs> Just give us a blood draw, and we'll tell you how mindful you are. <laughs> Michael, here's your mindfulness score. <laughs> Next time on The Lab Report, science-ness, technology, and machine mechanics. Oh, I love that segment. I can't wait. Yeah, and we're going to talk bugs in the gut. Cool. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Okay, Michael. Yeah. Ocean or lake?
Uh, I'm a lake person. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Why? Is it the sand or the salt? It's, it's all of it. And the sharks yeah. don't help. That's fair.